Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 28th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Housing has never been more expensive. The cost of renting is at a record high. Never before has so many people been homeless in the history of the state. Finding a place to rent is next to impossible because there is so little available. And if you do find somewhere, affording the rent is beyond many. Odd as it may seem, the housing crisis has become an opportunity for sleazy property owners who see nothing wrong with exploiting an impossible situation situation for so many people so that they can take advantage of very young women for their own sexual gratification. Night, night. Those men offering somewhere to say to a, a woman in return for sexual favours. What they didn't know was that they were speaking to an undercover reporter. If you watched primetime on television last night, I imagine that, like me, you were shocked by the RTE Investigates report into sex for rent. Let's speak to one of the programme makers, Aoife Hegarty, investigative journalist with RTE. Good morning, Aoife, and Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. It, it really was an eye-opener for a, a lot of us uh, to see what was going on. For people who, who didn't see the programme last night, maybe you talk us through what you discovered and what you exposed on television yesterday. Well, Michael, I suppose some form of the sex for rent phenomenon has existed for, for quite some time now. But as you say, when you set it in the context of today's housing crisis and the scarcity of rental accommodation that's out, that's out there, it's been elevated to a whole new level now. And as a result of that, there are people out there who feel that they have little choice to, but to consider all options just to keep a roof over their heads. And increasingly among those choices nowadays is the sex for rent scenario. And that's where there are landlords, people out there who feel it is okay to advertise beds in their houses online. But instead of looking for that traditional monetary rent, they want sex or sexual acts in return. And I think, you know, what we saw last night... 
is testament to the very eye-opening and sobering situation that, that some tenants faced. Um, we ha- worked with an undercover researcher, Barbara Suarez, and she posed as a Brazilian student. She replied to several of these um, ads online. Uh, she made it clear at all times uh, that she had lost her job as an au pair, that she was struggling to find accommodation. But yet, despite all that, we found several people who it appeared were just only too willing to take advantage of her vulnerability. Mm, and take it or leave it uh, seemed uh, to be the attitude because if she didn't want to avail of the opportunity as uh, they were presenting it to live somewhere free of charge, there were others who would take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, the, the various uh, tactics and approaches that she came up against were varied. And I mean, you are talking about um, men and, and and people right around the country. Each of the case studies that we featured, you know, came from various parts of the country. Those featured were of varying age groups from their 30s up towards their late 50s, 60s. Um, and you had, you know, requests, like repeated requests for photographs generally before a meeting even took place in person. Um, uh, and that was so that they could see if the, if the vulnerable person fitted the criteria that they had in their heads before providing such a basic need, even just as a bed. Mm. Um, there were multiple requests for our researcher to meet the people in their cars before a meeting took place in a public setting. Um, requirements for the demands to start with immediate effect and just persistent texts and pressure and even on top of that in some scenarios a demand to to carry out cleaning in the houses in addition to those other sexual acts. Yeah uh, and it was a quid pro quo type of arrangement uh, that uh, the men were offering but essentially uh, they were looking for something in return for what they had to offer, uh, which uh, was the room uh, free of rent. Uh, but essentially it comes down to buying sex, does it not? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, what the key point here is legislation, and it is against the law in Ireland to purchase sex, but it is not yet legislated. Um, but what's not yet legislated for here is the exchange of sex for benefits like accommodation. Um, and, and that's the key issue here in that is what we saw last night technically illegal or not. Mm. Now, last year, um, the ban on sex for rent bill was brought forward by the Social Democrats, TDT and O'Callaghan. And it did try to create two new offences, um, which would criminalise both the person stipulating sex as a condition of accommodation and would also criminalise the online platforms where these ads are hosted. Now, the bill did receive general support, but it didn't proceed because of several difficulties. Um, and until if, if we continue to rely on existing legislation, there are potential pitfalls um, in that regard. So really, most people will agree that the best way to address this issue is simply to introduce um, specific bespoke legislation. But yet when we put this um, to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, in advance of our programme last night, you know, she did tell us that she found, finds re- a sex for rent propositions to be an appalling abuse of power and completely unacceptable. Yet when it you boils down to what actually government are doing about it, it appears to be very little hmm. because 
this issue is supposed to have been reviewed as part of a, a review of part four of the Criminal Justice Act. But yet this week it emerged um, that that review, despite having been co- uh, commissioned three years ago, um, it's now been agreed that the person who was appointed to conduct that study can no longer do so. And the department has to re-advertise for that role, meaning that legislation in this area of sex for rent is still a long, long way off. Okay, so it's uh, back to uh, the starting block, basically, in terms of trying to legislate specifically against this, which is that there are uh, benefits that the property owners would enjoy uh, and that they would be agreed between the two parties, uh, not necessarily buying sex, but as you say, uh, it could be looked on uh, as a benefit. I guess that needs to be tested, does it not? Yeah, I mean, look, many are, yeah, experts will argue that in a sex for rent scenario, there are questions that also arise around the issue of consent, because these aren't relationships of equality. And when you have one party who, for instance, could be facing homelessness, in those circumstances, that may amount to exploitation. Mm. But as I said, there is difficulty relying on that existing sexual offences legislation because there's potential pitfalls there around, you know, claiming the defence that, uh, you know, both parties were willing participants for existence. So really, if you're going to avoid any of that ambiguity, that potential confusion, then you have a specific law that addresses the issue. And there is precedent for this. The UK introduced such similar legislation since 2019. I mean, it's over a year here since the likes of the examiner have really started to bring this issue to the fore. Yet it appears in all that interim time, very little has moved in regard to legislation here. And there is a question over uh, consent in terms of uh, these agreements. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, it's probably not that long ago, Aoife, since uh, it was impossible to charge somebody uh, with uh, rape uh, in a, a marital situation. Marital consent was not necessary. Uh, here we're uh, possibly claiming that it's consensual. Uh, but if you've got a contract which requires that somebody has sex with you every week or twice a week or three times a week, which is basically what you were reporting on last night, uh, it's hard to believe that that would always be consensual. Yeah, and I mean, as you can imagine, if there is essentially, a, you know, a, an, an axe over someone's head, uh, because it is a scenario where you either go for this option to have a roof over your heads or you potentially sleep on the streets, then you have to wonder where is the equality in that relationship? Mm. And without equality, can you have full proper and open consent. Okay, and do you believe that this is widespread? Was it difficult to find uh, these men who were looking for arrangements like this or that couple, for that matter, uh, at uh, the end of your report yesterday? Well, you know, the websites where you typically find these ads, they may not be familiar to everyone. You know, their websites called Lecanto and Viva Street, for example. Yet they do, Michael, get significant traffic because respectively those two websites account for the second and third most visited classified sites in Ireland. And, you know, on those sites, you'll get a range of everything. You have job vacancies, property for sale, and you even have personals for, for escort services. But increasingly, you have these ads um, for, for rooms to let, which link sexual demands to accommodation needs. Now, we have no specific um, 
statistics here as to uh, the volume or how you know prevalent this behaviour is. But what you do have is anecdotal evidence that shows that it's increasing. And I mean, even the fact when we put this to one of the ads in advance or one of the websites in advance of the programme, um, Locanto told us about you know all the controls and mechanisms that they have in place to try and prevent these ads going up, even though as recent as this night we found another one on their website. But you know, they told us that in the last year alone, they removed 21,000 objectionable ads from their website in Ireland. Now, we don't know exactly what objectionable means, Mm. but in anyone's language, that's a very significant number of ads to have been taken down here. Yeah, and just on the subject of uh, the couple uh, who were looking to rent a room for free or in return for sex, if you like, with a young woman, it was curious, was it not? to think uh, that they were looking for a Ukrainian woman, a very vulnerable woman, obviously. Well, you would have heard our experts talk last night about um, about the fact that they would have known the vulnerability of the person that they were seeking. You have someone who's essentially fleeing a war situation um, and is, in that effect, particularly vulnerable. Um, and you would have heard the couple themselves say last night that they advertised seeking a Ukrainian because they felt that Ukrainians would reach out more. Um, And again, one of our experts last night spoke about the fact that, you know, you can't, while you... In their minds, they might justify that relationship as being, you know, quite open, perhaps a bit kinky, even very liberal. That is not the case when one person in that situation um, is in is in is not equal um, and is facing a situation where it's that or God knows what on any else. Okay, Aoife, listen, thanks for joining us. Uh, We're going to be talking shortly uh, about uh, the fall off in TV licence sales, but I I think your programme last night was uh, uh, very good. Uh, One of the best examples of public service broadcasting, uh, excellent journalism, and uh, thank you indeed for that and for joining us on the programme today. That's Aoife Hegarty, investigative journalist at RTE. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, let's talk about uh, TV licences. Uh, RTE lost uh, close uh, to a, a million euro, just under €900,000 last week. Uh, or at least uh, funding uh, was short that compared to uh, the same period last year. Obviously, this comes on foot of uh, the controversy about the Ryan Turbidy payments and related issues. Let's speak uh, to a member of uh, the Media Committee, Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. A very good morning to you uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. This loss in revenue uh, is as a result of fewer renewals, close to 40%, and fewer new licences being sold in the, the third week of July. Uh, But before we talk about that and what that means, uh, maybe we could uh, reflect on uh, the last item that we were discussing, which was uh, that programme on primetime, the RTE investigates into sex for rent, because we need a public broadcaster, don't we? I mean, if you don't pay your licence fee, uh, there's very little hope that RTE can continue and there won't be programmes like that and all the very good parts that there are to RTE. Would you agree with that? Yes. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, uh, in, in any democracy, having a good quality public service broadcaster uh, is essential. 
And public service broadcasting is carried out by RTE. It's carried out by local radio stations such as LMFM. Uh, it's carried out um, by other um, broadcasters. When they broadcast news and current affairs and stories about our communities and documentaries and programmes like uh, the Primetime Investigates programme uh, last night. So those sort of things, they cost money to make uh, and they have to be funded. And they're, they're generally not the type of programme that will attract uh, commercial advertising funding. Um, so, so that means it does have to come uh, out of, at present, uh, the licence fee. Uh, there, there are probably two reasons, though, which, which I think uh, tie in. I think one is, is certainly uh, the, you know, the controversy in RT has not helped RT uh, encourage people to pay their license fee. I think people are, are rightly mm-hmm. angry about some of the cultural problems there. We also have a change in how we are consuming content. So, you know, the days where everybody used to arrive in at home and sit in front of the TV uh, and. Uh, there was the one set in the corner and it was family viewing time. That's very much changed. We're looking at content, you know, now on our tablets, on our phones. Uh, there are an increasing number of households um, who don't even have a traditional television set. Uh, yeah. If they're going to watch what is called TV programming, uh, they'll tend to, to look at it on a laptop. Um, we have a big rise in, in streaming services. So Netflix, Disney Plus, and uh, Now TV, um, and people are paying to, to access content there. But at the same time, if we want good quality public service broadcasting made, the news, current affairs, arts, sports, documentary, we, we've got to find some way uh, of funding it. Mm. Um, my, my, my own personal view um, is I think that the licence fee, that we should replace the licence fee and that we should fund public service broadcasting uh, out of general taxation. Um, the license fee originally can be traced back to uh, what is the Wireless Telegraphy Act of 1926, when at that time, if you had a radio or a wireless, uh, you had to have a license for that. And when television came about in Ireland, the TV license fee uh, replaced that during the 1960s. Um, but, you know, in the modern age, I, I think we have to look at a different way of funding public service broadcasting. It's what's done in most of our uh, our, our European partner countries mm. and uh, I think you know the crisis in RTE really you know the underlying reasons for that crisis was the, the difficulty between RTE trying to generate licence fee revenue and then also competing for commercial revenue. Okay does it matter if RTE gets state funding uh, and that we're all paying for it, essentially, even if we don't watch or listen to RTE. Uh, you mentioned people there, for example, who just watch streaming programmes, Netflix or, or, or whatever. But at the same time, if you ask them, what do you think of uh, people uh, renting out properties for sex to vulnerable young women who are forced into a position basically of having to sell themselves if they want to find somewhere to live in this country in the middle of a housing crisis? And people would probably say, or you'd hope they'd say, oh, that's dreadful, that should be stopped. In fact, uh, it shouldn't have ever been allowed. There should be a law against that. Uh, And without this type of reporting through the state broadcaster or the other mediums that you mentioned, uh, you're probably not going to be aware of it, uh, whether you watch RTE or Netflix. And a programme like that can call into question, legislation can lead to debate, discussion and uh, indeed change, change to the country that we live in. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, th- there are lots of services that are funded, uh, you know, by the state um, that we don't necessarily all avail of. Um, but at the same time, it's important, you know, that they are that they are funded. Uh, so, for instance, and I mean, a, 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 you know, a very valid case would be around mental health services, and there's always, you know, a campaign for extra funding there. Not everybody has to avail of those mental health services, but I think people do believe that it's important that they're there. Um, the state funds the arts, the state funds sports and sporting organisations, and, you know, not everybody necessarily likes going to the theatre or to music gigs. Not everybody necessarily likes sport or, or sporting activity. But it's still important at the same time, you know, that there is a level of state funding um, that is provided to those activities because they're, they're really important to all of our communities. Mm. So um, the point about public sector broadcasting is it is something that is a public good. I think, you know, we all understand the importance of, of balance, evidence-based news and current affairs, you know, the, 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 the making of documentaries about, you know, telling stories uh, about ourselves and about our communities, uh, the importance of music and the arts and sports and making sure that they appear on, on our screens. Uh, and, and that costs money. Um, and I think if, if it is funded directly from the state, it, it should be at arm's length. You should never have a situation where, if you like, governments directly controls where the spending goes. Um, but that we would do it, say, through the new media commission, that they would manage the funding uh, and that they would allocate it. And, and, and that happens already, um, and, and you'd be familiar with this in LMFM, Michael, with there is a thing called the Sound and Vision Funds, where there's actually a top slice taken from the licence fee, uh, which allows for radio stations and other broadcasters to compete actively um, for funding for Sound and Vision to tell stories about things in our community and stories that may not otherwise be funded that it'd be very difficult to you know get a commercial sponsor uh, to come on board to fund these things but they're really sure important yeah. to, uh, uh, and to what we all we all do uh, absolutely and it is uh, very valuable funding and it leads to very valuable public service broadcasting uh, the truth is though that RTE gets the vast bulk of the license fee doesn't it should that continue to be the case well, I mean, my view is we, we have to have that discussion around uh, what is public service broadcasting and how we fund it. Have you uh, thoughts on that? Is the, is the Late Late Show public service broadcasting? Uh, I think there are elements of the Late Late Show that are. But, but again, this is the debate around. So, you know, when people watch the Late Late Show, is it an entertainment programme? But at the same time, it, it often touches on, you know, um, very important uh, issues of public concern. And I mean, if people think about in, in, in many ways, if you look back at the history, the Late Late Show shaped modern Ireland, particularly when Gay Burton was presenter in terms of often bringing controversial issues mm. forward. It, does it do it to the same extent today? That's open to debate because it, it, it doesn't dominate, you know, in, in the way that, you know, in a sense, every home in Ireland used to watch it every week. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't dominate the broadcast landscape in the same way as it did in the past, but it still fills a very important public service role. And it generates an awful lot of advertising, which you were saying, which generates an awful lot of money. And without that money, RTE would argue that it doesn't have enough money to produce the programmes that you're saying are without a shadow of a doubt public service broadcasting and should be funded by the state, uh, that they need the two in tandem. Without the Late Late Show and the money it generates, you won't have the primetime investigates or the news and current affairs uh, that you're talking about, in other words. 
exactly. And I mean, in, in a bizarre way, if the, the current controversy and scandal that, that's engulfing RTE, um, you know, those of us in the Oireachtas Media Committee have been debating a lot of these issues, you know, over the last few years. But now, because of what has happened in RTE, there is a much bigger debate uh, around, you know, what is public service broadcasting? How do we fund it? Um, we're into an era now where, you know, one of our biggest challenges is around misinformation and disinformation. Uh, you know, you broadcast LMFM will broadcast the news. I mean, you will not, you know, broadcast stuff that is that is false or that is inaccurate. You have particular obligations, but you're competing now with a, you know, a social media environment, uh, which you know we're seeing lots of misinformation and disinformation, mm. and it is it is critical for all of us um, that we are able to get the truth, that we're mm. able to get evidence. Um, provided uh, to us in 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 a, in a balanced way, and that's that's critical for our democracy. Okay, uh, but we're in trouble, aren't we? I mean, uh, that one million, close to nine hundred thousand, uh, in uh, the course of uh, the last week. Uh, I think overall, we're talking about more than two million. Uh, which is uh, for the month of July 2.2 million euro uh, an incredible amount of money if it goes on like that uh, well there's very little future is there for RTA or public service broadcasting that is funded through the licence yeah. well uh, look uh, people have an obligation to pay their licence fee and they should pay their licence fee because the people who are really suffering as a result of the licence fee not being paid are not you know the the top stars and so on. In many ways, it's it's those news journalists, those who are making the programs last night, and we still need to get that revenue that 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 comes in. Mm. The model though is is clearly broken. It's an outdated model, and I think now is the ideal time to look at making that change, as has been done in many mm. other countries. Uh, if we look at you know similar sized countries to Ireland, like Denmark and Finland, mm. where there is a mechanism where out of general taxation. Um, public sector broadcasting uh, is is funded, and I think now is the opportunity uh, to to seize that initiative. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the license fee was you know great for the 1970s and 1980s, but we're we're in a very different world. Yeah. Um, we have to have a way of of properly funding in the digital age yeah. public sector broadcasting, but I, I don't think the license fee is the correct model. But if people are angry about lavish spending and high salary, something needs to be done if you're going to convince them that the licence is worth it. And does that mean that you can't be paying 250 or 300 or 400,000 to Patrick Keelty or Claire Byrne or Marion Finucane or Joe Duffy? Do those salaries have to come down? Well, I, I mean, I was one of the first when the controversy broke out. I mean, I was one of the first to call for, you know, full clarity around Patrick Keelty's uh, salary. Um, that there is openness and transparency in RTE. I asked the question, and I, I think it's a legitimate one, as to whether anybody in RTE should be paid more than the Taoiseach. Uh, and Shunir Ahag, the chair of RTE, did acknowledge that in many ways RTE was competing against itself. You know, the stars were coming in saying, oh, well, if, you know, I went here, I'd get pay- paid more or whatever. But, you know, that was never really tested by the market. So I think what we are going to see is at the senior levels, we're going to see much more realistic salaries um, being paid. I think, you know, they will be coming down. Um, I, I, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I know people sometimes think it's an, it's an easy job. It's not like there's a lot of work involved in, in terms of what some of these people do. Um, but their salary expectations have to be reasonable. And as we've already seen, 
you know, Patrick Kilty is going to be paid less uh, than, than Ryan Tuberty um, for doing the late late. Uh, and I, I think Gorty is going to have to cut its cloth to uh, to meet its measure. Um, it will see um, very clearly, you know, limits being placed on its budget. Any support from government will be contingent uh, on it getting its finances um, back in order. Um, my my worry will be is that you know that there's some sticking plaster solution uh, reached this year. We've got to finally bite the bullet and make the decision as to how we're going to fund public sector broadcasting um, into the future, put a a long-term model in place. Uh, And that that involves, as I said, not just the national broadcaster, but Virgin Media, TG Cahar, and also uh, local media as well. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, Undoubtedly, uh, this conversation will rumble on for some months to come. But thanks for joining us uh, this morning. That is uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne, who is a member of the Media Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if uh, the kids are away on holidays or living abroad uh, for that matter and you get a, a text at some stage, maybe late at night, you might be woken for it or on your way to bed and uh, you get a text that says, Hi, Mum, I've lost my phone. This is a, a temporary number. I'm sure you're going to be curious and find out what's going on and uh, that's perfectly understandable, but you should be careful. Indeed, uh, let's hear why Paul O'Brien... Uh, from Bank of Ireland's security group joins us now. And Paul, your advice to people if they get a text like this is be careful, be suspicious, in fact, and be very cautious for that matter. That's it, exactly, Michael. It's 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 a scam that isn't new, but we're seeing a lot more of it recently. And it's really simple. It, like you said, it's a text that will start with something like, hi, mom, hi, dad, my phone's broken and this is my new number. Now, it won't have any link or anything in it, but what they wanted to do is, is reply, and then it'll very quickly move on to, I have an urgent bill that I have to pay, so can you help me? And that's where they're trying to get this as quickly as they can. Mm, okay. Uh, and obviously this one is doing the rounds. Uh, uh, have people been falling for it? Unfortunately, yeah. And look, it, it's a really natural thing, Michael. You get a text if you have, as you said, the, the example you used is this time of year you might have people kids away on holidays or away working for the summer or something like that you know it can happen anytime Mm. but your natural reaction if you get something like that aside from your first instinct of what in the name of god have they done now is to move on and say yeah look what what's going on what what can i do how can i help you Mm. um it really is devious isn't it because uh, i mean that's preying on that vulnerability and an odd situation because you're you're vulnerable because you want to be protective of your children uh, and you'll do anything for them uh, as you say despite what they might have been up to. Uh, so you get the uh, text uh, and you, you wonder um, what's going on. Uh, another message then comes. What, what happens after that? How do they, do they end up scamming you? So, as I said, really simple. It, it starts with that, hi, mum, dad. You know, it could be my phone's broken. This is my new number. It could be I lost my phone and my phone is stolen. Uh, if mum, mum or dad reacts. And, and look, these go to, you know, literally thousands and thousands of text numbers 99% of people won't have a child, mm. will know it's a scam and will ignore it. But in, in the case where mum or dad reacts and goes, what's up, what happened? There'd be a little bit of conversation of, look, you know, maybe my, I lost my phone or my phone was stolen. Um, and mum or dad will obviously say, look, is everything OK? And they'll go, ah, look, it's OK. But look, I'm really sorry, but I have an urgent bill that I have to pay. Or, or maybe it's that 
look, I need some money to buy a new phone and I don't have access to my bank anymore because all that was on the old phone. Mm. And, and what they're trying to do is get mum or dad to say, OK, fine, what do you need me to do? And there'll be a text message, a couple of different varieties. So it could be, look, here's a bank account. I need you to send money to this account. Mm. It could be, um, can you give me your card number? And then what will happen in the background is the fraudster will try and set up your card number on something like Apple Pay or Google Pay. You'll get a text message or a code from your own bank and the fraudster will say, you know, on the other end of the conversation, oh, the bank just sends you a text there, mum, can you give me that number? Mm. And, and that's how they'll, they'll get to that point. And I take it they're creating a sense of urgency as well, which might put oh, you into a, yeah, a bit yeah. of a, a panic again for that protective sense that we all have. Uh, and then you'll act without thinking. Uh, with this warning, perhaps people will think twice. What should you do if you get a text like this? Because you don't want to say, go away, I don't believe you, in case it's it's for real. <laughs> in case, yeah. And, and this is the really important yeah. thing, Michael. As much as the scam itself is really simple, mm. the solution is really simple too. So no matter what you're told, no matter how urgent it sounds, no matter that you're told the old phone is broken, you know, the general advice, we'd always say, stop, think, check. But most importantly in this case, always, always, always call the son or daughter back on the number that you have, the number you know. Um and as I said, 999 times out of a thousand, they'll answer the phone. You might wake them up, you know, who knows? Mm. But they'll answer the phone and you'll say, well, you texted me on another number and they won't even know what you're talking about. So that's the absolute most important thing for people to remember. As I said, no matter how urgent this text that you've got sounds or no matter what you're told about an old phone been broken or an old number been out of service, mm. always, always call them back on the number you know. Okay, and we seem to go from one scam to a, a, another, whether it's the post office or you've been near to somebody who's had COVID or you haven't paid your toll, or now it's, hi, mum, I've lost my phone, I'm on a temporary number. Uh, I, I take it that once uh, these have been discovered and revealed, the warnings have been set out uh, that they start devising a, a, a new scam. Yeah, it, it can happen that way, Michael. And as you said, some of those ones you mentioned are, are some of the very common ones recently, the the motorway toll, the e-flow, the posted delivery. But the advice that we'd always give to people is is essentially always the same. It's yeah. that stop, think, check. Don't be rushed into anything. Have a think about what you've been asked. And, you know, never give away those confidential details like your online banking pins or any codes that your bank has sent you by text. It's just... You know, while the while the method might change, as you say, and there'll always be something new, and you know, we could be chatting in three or four months, and there could be another version. But but that message will always be the same. And as much as sometimes these can sound a bit scary, I don't want people to think that they're not, you know, that they can't do anything. We're, we're still in control of it ourselves, you know. And if we if we do that kind of stop, think, check, and if we keep those details like our online banking pins and codes safe we'd be absolutely fine and we don't have anything to worry about. Okay, I take it uh, it requires a a lot of resource in Bank of Ireland, uh, in all of the banks. Security uh, must be uh, a really uh, challenging part of how banks operate these days. Yeah, look, it's something that's really important to us. And and look, obviously, we need to protect our customers, we need to protect ourselves, and we would work very closely with Gardaí and stuff like this as well. Um, As I said, it's, it's a very important thing that, that we do, and yet we've, we've a lot of kind of uh, resource behind us. But what we're saying to people is, look, work with us on this. We'll we'll do everything we can in the background to protect you. But if you just keep those couple of simple things in mind, that general one of 
stop thing check and don't give away any of those confidential details mm. and on this specific one that we're talking about now as I said no matter what you're told Call the, call the son or daughter back on the number you know and you'll keep yourself perfectly safe and secure in this one. Okay, and if you're worried that you've paid over money to a scammer, contact the bank, I take it, Paul? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. As soon as, you know, unfortunately people can get caught by this, but as soon as you think you might have given away some details or you might have been caught, give us a ring and, and we'll help you. We have a 24-7 uh, free phone number, which is 1800 946-764 and there's always somebody on the other end of the phone that will help. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Paul O'Brien from Bank of Ireland's Security Group. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if you were listening to us yesterday, you'd uh, know we were plagued uh, with bad phone lines uh, trying to make a, a connection to Independent uh, Senator Jared Crockwell. Uh, we've a steady landline this morning and good morning to you once again, Senator Crockwell. Thanks indeed for coming back to us uh, because... I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest in this cyber awareness program that you've developed in conjunction with LMETB, the Loud the Mead Education and Training Board. As you were about to tell us, I think yesterday before the gremlins kicked in, uh, this is something that came about following on from the cyber security attack at the HSE. Uh, Good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for coming back to me. This is a really important subject uh, that we are discussing today. The uh, Loud Me DTB, led by Martin O'Brien, Chief Executive Officer, and uh, Adrian Kelly down in the Advanced Manufacturing Training Centre of Excellence, um, is a programme that we've put together over the last uh, eight months. It really does, as you pointed out, Michael, arise from the um, impact of the attack, the cyber attack, on the health service executive back in 2021 and indeed the health service executive was attacked again in june of this year um so we cannot be more um, up to speed on cyber awareness. We, we in Ireland need to really up our game. And by the way, cyber isn't about uh, massive state-sponsored attacks on the likes of our health service. It's about uh, criminals, mm. some of them state-sponsored, attacking even small manufacturing uh, uh, places in Loud. Yeah. If you're on the web, you are available uh, for an attack. And really, cyber attacks are based on ransomware more than anything else. Yeah. So, so um, I know, Amel, we, I mean, it, it's everywhere. We were just speaking with Bank of Ireland uh, about uh, these text messages that come. But uh, as you say, if you're on uh, the internet, uh, you're particularly vulnerable. I was speaking to somebody uh, just this week uh, about paying um, a bill uh, and being sent an IBAN number and being very careful about that because even those emails, uh, if you're sent an email with an IBAN number, that email can be intercepted by somebody who deletes that email and sends you the same email and then takes your money from you. I'm not sure I fully understood it, let alone uh, am I capable of explaining it, Uh, but it was just another one of these things about how vulnerable we can be in the digital world. 100% 100% Michael uh, what we've got to be aware of all of the time and particularly I'm delighted that you're airing this on your own program because there will be people there who get frightening messages that they have an unpaid bill or that they have a son or a daughter who's trapped and lost their wallet and needs money transferred to this kind person who has allowed them to ma- send a text message. Nobody should ever respond to anything like that but one of the key things in Loud Me the ETB is they're going to 
build what they call an OT simulator. And an OT simulator is about how cyber criminals can attack production line systems. And uh, take, for example, a guy manufacturing kitchens. Um, They can rig the system that it cuts uh, every second piece of timber short. So an entire day's production can be destroyed. They can lock up a production line and it won't move until you pay a ransom. So it's really good what's been done in Loudmedia TB. Now, it's a bit slow yeah. getting off the ground. Are you serious? I mean, they, they, they'll do that. My God. Yeah, there's, if you're connected and everything yeah. is connected these days, anything can, uh, they can stop anything. Mm. It's only a matter of time before they're able to do it through Bluetooth into your car. Um, and, and that's the world we're living in. So mm. people have mm. to be aware and Martin O'Brien has been visionary in uh, taking on this. He sent a team with me out to Estonia to see how the Estonians do it. And we've tried to replicate that as best we can. It will be a leader in the whole cyber IT, OT area. They're providing services to companies. Companies can have their uh, own IT systems risk assessed. And they can ha- avail of a program through Loudme, the ETB, to upskill their staff. And you know, this is everybody that has a web presence should be speaking to Loud Me DTB now about how they can get uh, in on this program and how they can protect themselves. Right. Okay. I take it you'd need uh, to have somebody dedicated to that type of work in your business. I take it most bigger businesses have um, an IT person anyway, and I take it that's uh, the uh, person who you'd be sending uh, to uh, gain this knowledge. And one of, one of the frightening things we're learning as we've worked our way through this is that um, many, many organizations who have great IT networking people, it's not the same having an IT uh, cyber expert. Cyber is a very separate area from normal IT administration. So what we're, what we're trying to get the message across to small businesses, to chambers of commerce, to chief executive officers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've got to rethink your cyber awareness program. And even in your own office there, Michael, all you need is somebody to click on an email link, uh, believing that it's something important for them to look at. If you don't know where it came from, don't click on it. That would be my answer. They could cripple your own system uh, in a matter of nanoseconds. That's frightening where we're going, Mm. but... Uh, the, the goal and the vision for uh, the the cyber awareness program is to upskill the entire country and uh, hopefully other education and training boards will follow Martin O'Brien's lead. Okay, all right. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Uh, and I'm sure, as I say, it'll be a, of interest. Thanks for coming back to us. By the way, did I hear you on the news saying yesterday that uh, we're still a neutral country even though we've joined the war in Ukraine? Well, we haven't actually joined the war. Ah, in we have. We've sent troops over, haven't we? No, not to Ukraine. We've sent to troops. support uh, Ukrainian troops, though, to train Ukrainian yeah. troops. 
Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, Michael, I said it to you way back when the war started. Uh, the then Minister for Defence, Simon Coveney, said Ireland was not neutral in the case of the Ukrainian war. He never brought that issue to the Oireachtas. And uh, I believe that should have been debated in the Oireachtas at the very least. Mm. But we're hardly neutral, are we, if we're training troops in one side of a war? We never were neutral, and I totally agree with you, we are not neutral, and we cannot claim neutrality, uh, and particularly at this time, we can't. Okay, very good. Thank you indeed, uh, Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell there. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments. Thanks, by the way, to everybody who's been uh, in touch with us so far today, and a lot of people in touch with us uh, for that matter, particularly about our opening piece, and indeed the programme on RTE television last night, the Primetime RTE Investigates into sex for rent. May on the phone, disgusted watching RTE investigates last night and the brazen and casual way that these men told the renter that they expected sex as part of the rental agreement. It was the rental agreement, May. Uh, You get the room uh, and we have sex. Uh, That was the agreement. They were so matter-of-fact about it. Like, it it was nothing out of the ordinary. Shocking stuff altogether. May says all of those landlords who are caught doing this should be reported to the guards immediately and face prison time for their disgraceful behaviour. Thanks, May. There is a question as to whether it is legal or illegal, uh, whether it is a consensual agreement uh, between two parties or otherwise. Money isn't changing hands. It is illegal to buy sex, but money isn't changing hands. And therein lies the vacuum, the loophole, as you uh, may understand it. Uh, Tony says, fair play to the RTE Investigates team for highlighting this shocking behaviour. It was genuinely shocking watching the programme, Tony says. And he goes on to say that he and his wife were agog listening to what the men were saying to the undercover reporter. It's frightening to think what is facing female renters out there. Those caught trying to exploit women like that should be locked up and the key thrown away. Echoing uh, what May had to say uh, in many respects. And thank you, Tony, uh, as well, uh, for your text to the programme. Uh, other texts about RTE as well, uh, and indeed all of the problems that it's been facing, it really is the two halves of RTE, isn't it? Uh, the fine uh, investigative journalist, journalism that... Uh, uh, we're, we're also used to uh, and then uh, what we've been learning about in the last few months um, somebody uh, texting saying if RTE is broke why are they having two people to present the Rose of Tralee when one person always did it and did a great job <laughs> thank you uh, I'll send that uh, uh, on to uh, Dahi uh, thank you Mrs O'Shea <laughs> was that Mrs O'Shea who sent in that text uh, somebody else says RTE is not independent they never criticise the government or advocate continuously for homelessness or similar issues uh, the money should be redirected into education and teach kids how to spot misinformation and how to understand propaganda influence in the media and social media sphere. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, I'd have to say uh, that I would totally and utterly disagree with that and would uh, say uh, without a shadow of a doubt that RTA News uh, and Current Affairs is independent uh, and uh, does hold those in positions of authority to account. 
Uh, I, I don't think that there's any doubt about that. I'm saying, not saying that they always get it right. Uh, who does? Uh, but I, I think uh, that uh, they've got a very fine news and current affairs section. Tony in County Louth uh, in touch saying Michael Ryan Tuberty was right about one thing in all of this whole matter uh, and that uh, it's all being directed at him when the truth is uh, that there are several in that organisation that are grossly overpaid for light entertainment presentation. I, I, I think that's true and I think that's a very valid point, Tony, and it is a conversation, as Malcolm Byrne was saying, that needs to be had or people feel needs to be had now. Uh, they're not getting paid as much as they were when Pat Kenny was getting paid 900000 on a, a year instead of just 500000 that Ryan Tuberty was getting. And the difference between Ryan Tuberty uh, and the Marion Finucans and Claire Burns and Joe Duffy's is that they're not hiding their earnings. Nobody's giving them money under the counter. There's no uh, doubt a- about the uh, repugnant amount of money that is paid to them. Uh, uh, it's all above board uh, and it's there for everybody to see and it always has been. Uh, but uh, Tony, uh, in his text, goes on he, he, to say that I would not mind so much the political editors and presenters who have a, a serious and important job to do, but he doesn't think that light entertainers should be paid this big money. I hope Mr Backhurst will take this opportunity to take in hand the remuneration of the likes of Joe Duffy, Ray Darcy, presenting very frivolous light entertainment programmes for huge money and if they threaten to walk let them walk. I think the public has shown it would not care at this stage. Thank you uh, Tony uh, indeed uh, for that. Uh, on the Primetime Investigates programme then Mick says why did they not show the faces of these men? What kind of wives have these men? Don't tell me that they aren't happily married. <laughs> I don't know if they are happily married. I don't think their wives would be very happy if they knew about some of uh, the shenanigans. Uh, but thanks indeed, Mick, uh, for that. More comments uh, have come to us. We'll come to them a little bit later on. If you want to add to what's been said, our telephone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 0861-800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, if you were listening to us yesterday, or indeed any of the reports, uh, because uh, there was so much coverage of uh, the final report from uh, the Inspector of Mental Health Services, Dr. Susan Finnerty, into the CAMS services. This is uh, the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. That the service uh, really. Uh, is dire uh, and has many failings uh, but that her report despite all of the shocking parts to how under resourced and uh, incapable uh, we as a state are in terms of looking after young people's mental health uh, that that is not really of any surprise to anybody who has had any interaction with CAMS Uh, Let's speak to Peter Hughes, who's uh, the General Secretary of uh, the Psychiatric Nurses Association. A a very good morning to you, Peter, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Indeed, in your own statement, uh, you said as much yourself that it's not surprising, but you said that you hope that this report will be a final wake-up call, that it will lead to some change and some action and some improvement uh, and that we protect such vulnerable people. Yes, absolutely. Like the the uh, report details a system that is failing children, adolescents, their families in accessing fit for purpose mental health services in a timely manner. 
And that's throughout the whole report. Now, as we stated in our statement, we are extremely, it's extremely worrying. But it's not surprising because we've been highlighting a lot of these deficits over years and years at uh, department level, at THSE level, at government level. But there doesn't appear to be an urgency in addressing the difficulties in CAMS. For example, in the last number of years, the, the bed numbers, which are supposed to be 100 as per Vision for Change in 2016, there's only 43 operational beds in the country. The, the teams, the community teams, and the report uh, verifies this, are operating at 50 to 60% of staffing levels. Mm. In the past, since uh, December 2020 to February this year, the waiting list has gone up 60% from 2755 to 4434. And there's an increase of demand of 33%. And we have called on the budget in relation to CAMS for a number of years. The budget for CAMS is 12% of the mental health budget. The mental health budget is 5.2% of the overall health budget. It's supposed to be 10%. So effectively, the CAMS budget is less than 1% of the health budget. Okay. So it has, there's numerous problems, but it really, really, this is a wake-up call, and it's time to really address this, because these are the, these are the future of this country. And the report actually states 24% of the population are under 18. So you have 24% of the population under 18 who may need to access CAMS, mm. and yet less than 1% of the health budget. And uh, with varying degrees of problems, uh, some uh, not so serious uh, and will recover quickly, uh, uh, some in, in a crisis. Anybody who's in one of those 43 beds is in a crisis, and the only reason they get one of those beds, I, I take it, is uh, to stop them from ending their life. There, has been, there was a report in the Irish Examiner this week in where it said that there was, you know, different different levels of reduction in admissions in uh, the areas that do have the beds, roughly around 40%. So those reductions, uh, it, it, you can correlate that with the staffing shortages. Like our members have been uh, contacting us at every opportunity doing their best at intolerable, intolerable uh, conditions to work and to constantly fill vacancies, constantly short-staffed. Mm. And there's a huge demand to do overtime and the agency. A lot of services are dependent on that. And I always, think you're, I always think your members have a, a really difficult job and I, I don't know how they can do it, uh, to be honest. I think it must take a, a special sort of individual to work with such troubled people and that in itself is hard. To do it uh, under such pressure because of a shortage of staff uh, is uh, hugely uh, challenging Uh, but it must be very very upsetting and distressing for your members to fail people uh, not through uh, their own fault but through a systemic fault that they're not able to help Yes, our members are very very frustrated because the service they would like to deliver they, they they are delivering as good a service as possible, but not as not today uh, level that they would like to provide. Like if you're working at sixty percent of the community mm. staff, uh, you can't do everything that you need to do. And then if you're working short in in units, that's the same. You, mm. you know, 
um, you have to prioritise. That's uh, not acceptable. You know? And I, I know uh, you don't represent Florence Nightingales uh, and that you're talking about professional psychiatric nurses here, but at the same time, uh, your members must spend a lot of their lives worrying a- about people that they aren't able to provide care to. It's, it's always worrying. You know, you, you, our members go into this to provide a professional uh, service and a quality service. But if you're not provided with the, the tools or the resources, it's very, very difficult and very frustrating. Mm. And, you know, there's a serious recruitment and retention problem within mental health overall, but in particular with CAMS. Mm. And, you know, the more you go in and you're working short, the more you're going to look elsewhere, unfortunately, for somewhere to work. So I think there needs to be a very, very targeted campaign to recruit and retain nurses in camps. They're going to have to think outside the box. They're going to have to look at inventive and innovative ways to retain staff in camps and to attract staff to, to camps mm. because this is this is not uh, this intolerable and not sustainable for any longer. It really needs to be done. If we take, for example, the Lindara, which is in Cherry Orchard, they closed eleven beds last May, and an assurance at the time was that those eleven beds would open in September last year. Fourteen months on, there's not a sign of them opening. And it's looking at this, there's little prospect that they will open. But if you take that they didn't mm. have to staff that unit, the hundreds of thousands, possibly up to a million that has been saved, that money needs to be reinvested urgently into a, a targeted campaign to recruit and retain nurses in the camp services. Okay, and obviously that's um, at the stage where people are in a, a crisis, uh, where they need a hospital bed, but the problem is right across the service, isn't it? As I said earlier on, some people have some problems that they can recover from relatively quickly when uh, they uh, get care. Uh, but getting a first assessment uh, can be yes. a nightmare. Uh, it can take 18 months. It can take longer, I'm sure. But I- I- if somebody uh, is left without being seen like that, uh, is it possible to say that they could have recovered in a, a couple of weeks had they been seen in a timely fashion, but because they weren't, that they end up in a hospital bed? Well, early intervention is crucial within the mental health services. The earlier the intervention, the earlier someone is is um, seen, the referral seen, the review done, the assessment done, the earlier the care plan can be put in place or people can be signposted to the appropriate services. But as I pointed out, the waiting list has increased, but they also the length of time people have to wait to be first assessment is totally not acceptable. As you said yourself, it's, it's anything between four months and 16 months. Mm, it's very unfair, isn't it? It's not. It, 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 these are these are the future of this country. We mm. need to address this. This is this this is a very very urgent. This is a major crisis, and yet, unfortunately, uh, we've seen reports come out before, and we've seen you know the media and and others highlighting the concerns, but it seems to die down again very quickly. Mm. But it needs this time. I think is it that is the final wake up call that needs to be addressed. And we really need to look at a target of uh, 
targeted campaign to recruit and retain nurses in, in camps. The timing of the publication. The timing of the publication of uh, the report uh, is a bit unfortunate, Peter. Uh, in the middle of uh, the summer, the doll is in sitting, uh, and uh, when it does resume, uh, it'll be into the budget cycle. Are, are you concerned that uh, this report uh, may be lost, overlooked, forgotten about, uh, and uh, that will be? in a similar situation in months or years from now? That is always a concern. However, I I, I certainly can state from our organisation's point of view, we will continue to highlight this at every every time we get an opportunity. We constantly address it with the government, with the department and the HSE. Because as I said, this this is not unproven. Um, You know, we've seen an increase in waiting lists. We've seen the staffing levels um, in the community have always been at 50 to 60 percent. That's not really improving. And then we've had units closed down, or if not the beds physically being closed, the operational amount of beds are closed, and it's not sustainable. Okay. We leave it there for the moment, Peter. Thanks uh, for joining Thank us you, once again. Always a pleasure, Peter Hughes, General Secretary of uh, the PNA, that's the Psychiatric Nurses Association. Some more comments coming to us. Uh, we'd Ellen in touch with us about a couple of points. The TV licence, first of all, she says, I hope revenue don't get uh, the licence fee. People in apartments and rental will never pay licence. It's the same people all of the time. Um, they're the overtaxed working people who are paying it. Thanks, Ellen, for uh, that. I think the idea, if revenue was to take over it, well, you wouldn't be able to hide behind uh, a couple of doors in an apartment. Uh, she also said she saw primetime last night and it was terrible, but why do they not show the landlords during this? And thank you indeed for that. Uh, I suppose the reason is uh, that there's uh, no certainty that what happened was uh, illegal. Um, uh, on scam messages, We'd uh, WhatsApp message uh, from someone who says, I-, I got that message. Hi, mom, I've lost my phone. I'm on a temporary phone. I got that message a few weeks ago uh, and for a split second, I believed it. And then I realised it was a scam because my kids don't call me mom. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's uh, the giveaway for our Irish mammies and mams. Uh, I'm not sure there's too many mums in the country, uh, but if you are a mum to your kids, watch out for those text messages <laughs> because uh, they are doing the rounds quite obviously. Uh, check it out. Don't miss it but be very cautious and suspicious I think is uh, the message from Bank of Ireland. If you want to make comment on the programme today as always 0419832000 is the number to ring. You can text or WhatsApp 086 658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the era of global warming is over. The world is now burning. That was the stark message uh, that was uh, delivered yesterday by uh, the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, calling on countries, particularly developed countries, to act to stop this crisis, uh, which has led to the extreme weather conditions 
all across the world. Let's speak once again to Sive O'Neill, who's uh, the coordinator of uh, the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. And a very good morning to you, Sive, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Antonio Guterres spelt it out in black and white terms yesterday, very clear terms, uh, that extreme weather is going to continue until we change the way we behave as individuals, as corporations and indeed as nations. Yes, absolutely. I think the most important message coming from the Secretary General this week, and by the way, he he comes out regularly with extremely strong, strident language, uh, urging governments to take much more uh, ambitious action uh, to reduce fossil fuel use and emissions. Um, but, But what he came out with yesterday was interesting. He was calling on the financial institutions to stop investing in fossil fuels, uh, and an immediate end to coal use. Now, coal use this year actually peaked because even though coal is declining um, in Europe and in North America, uh, its use is, is, is increasing in other countries, in India and in China, although it's likely to peak uh, very soon. Mm. So he was calling on coal use in particular because it is, it's a very carbon-intensive fuel uh, in comparison to other fossil fuels. But nonetheless, all fossil fuels will need to be phased out. And he's basically saying saying that politicians aren't doing enough, governments aren't doing enough, and it's not possible for individuals alone to solve this. We're talking about decisions that need to be taken at a very high level, at government level. And, for example, at the the next COP, which is taking place in Dubai, under the uh, chairmanship of uh, Al-Jaber, who happens to also be the head of the the United Arab Emirates, uh, oil company, um, there is a, a fear amongst many of us that his position is conflicted and that the UAE is not really ideally placed to host a COP where, you know, we're, we're going to see a, a demand to reduce fossil fuel use. Uh, mm. There'll be pressure to arrive at some sort of very neat consensus that, that suits their industries but won't deliver what's needed for climate action. Yeah, I, I think uh, you'd be forgiven for asking uh, if uh, the cops aren't much more than talking shops and uh, a chance uh, to uh, gain publicity for politicians uh, who talk a a lot of talk but when it comes down to it don't do much walking. Yeah, I mean there are there are a lot of issues. Different countries have different energy needs, reliance on different fossil fuels, and some of them have their own indigenous resources that they want to exploit and sell. So different countries have different dilemmas around this. But for Ireland, it's absolutely clear. We have no stake in the fossil fuel industry. Mm. We have um, some uh, licenses existing that are unlikely to be economically viable. And we are importing fossil fuels. So every cent and euro we spent on fossil fuels leaves the country. So it's not economically in our interest to side up and align ourselves with the fossil fuel nations. And Ireland should be standing in solidarity instead with those countries that are most vulnerable uh, to climate impacts and are also weaker in the international system in Mm. terms of influencing global policy. Mm. Uh, We have an opportunity to ramp up our renewables and do all of those things that the UN Secretary General was telling us to do. Um, But we need to see leadership 
leadership and it's always hard to get one country to stick its neck out and be a leader. Everybody wants to follow, nobody wants to lead. Mm. And he, he said there's consequences to all of this and we're seeing lots of consequences uh, as we speak in front of our eyes every day. Uh, we're watching uh, the uh, European continent burn uh, basically at this stage and who wants to be in Greece which is an odd thing to say in July but uh, in July uh, it seems very far away from where we are because we're having extreme weather of our own sort Uh, um, but uh, hard to understand that this could be the hottest July on record but it is that's what Antonio Guterres said yesterday he said even he said there's no doubt about it even if we had a mini ice age over the next couple of days uh, to bring down uh, some of uh, the data Uh, it still would be the hottest July on record and it's just going to continue like that. Yeah, it's very frightening, Michael, to be honest. I mean, I um, have been reading, basically there's a band of heat and of, you know, extreme heat all around the the Northern Hemisphere. So it's not just Europe. You have it in uh, Asia and you also have it in North America. I was reading this morning about all the sort of traditional American summer camps that typically took place outside and they're now renting, you know, warehouses to bring the kids indoors because of air pollution, fires and heat. It's just, you know, it's an extraordinary summer um, for these extreme temperatures. And it just shows us that there are tipping points, even in terms of our reaction. There's so much heat we can cope with, and then we have to be indoors in air conditioning. We just can't cope. Mm. So so the prognosis, I'm afraid, is really bad. And people need to understand this, that it's not just weather. It's not just going to be a freak summer. With El Nino kicking in later this year, next year is likely to be worse because El Nino does drive these temperature extremes even more. Mm. And in addition, as long as we keep pumping these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that blanketing effect on the atmosphere, trapping the heat, only gets worse. The heating will continue to get worse until we stop pumping fossil fuels. And it's just a really difficult, inconvenient message to hear. Um, But unfortunately, it is going to continue to get worse. And we have to take steps to immediately end our reliance on fossil fuels. It's a question of our survival. Mm. And the urgency, uh, Guterres said yesterday, uh, is ending the use of coal. You mentioned China and its use of coal. It's recorded temperatures of 50 degrees, uh, which I think had been unheard of there before. But it's not just coal. It's how we generate electricity as well, he said. Yeah. um, So the thing about China is China has a lot of good news stories as well. China's um, rolling out of renewables has exceeded all expectations, both onshore wind and solar. And I think it has more than trebled its output in the last few years, greatly exceeding the uh, projections from the International Energy Agency. So if you want to look at a country that's actually really taking that renewables piece seriously, you know, China is a great case. Um, And they're not the only country that's relying on on coal by any stretch. Uh, Russia is uh, using coal and oil and exporting it. And you have many other developing countries and middle-income countries that are not really part of the energy transition. They're relying on, you know, cheap fuels to uh, produce electricity and they don't see themselves as having alternatives. And the irony is, and people might not realise this, that the poorest countries in the world, some of whom are exporting their own resources, 
don't have any access to the finance necessary to develop renewable energy infrastructure. There's no capital investment going in to the poorest countries of the world at all Mm. because they're locked out of uh, international finance due to high interest rates, debts and all kinds of other issues. And there was two strands to Antonio Guterres' mm. speech in that sense. Uh, He was setting goals for developed countries uh, and uh, giving more time uh, to some of uh, the poorer countries in the world but he was also calling for the developed countries to help them with that transition. That's exactly it. And there are so many ways in which, which we can help. We can help by uh, delivering on our commitments to supply climate finance. Uh, the global community promised years ago, back in 2009, so the numbers are wildly out of date now, to um, provide $100 billion per annum in climate finance. A lot of this finance is starting to trickle through, but some of it comes with conditions. So it's, it's you know, it's tide aid. Ireland has a good record on this. But that amount of money is only a fraction of what's needed. What's needed is now reckoned to be in the billions per annum to support developing countries. Mm. And the other thing we can do is... Uh, insist and support on reforms to the international financial institutions to provide um, those developing countries that are struggling to get access to the finance to do this stuff and to develop their economies in a green way uh, to give them easier access to the the finance they need to do that. Because the perception is that what, what we have in Ireland is typical of the world and it's not. We are extraordinarily wealthy and we have lots of uh, private finance and also state finance. That is not the, tr- the case in developing countries. They're extremely vulnerable to kind of predator um, fossil fuel interests coming in, mm. extracting their resources, selling it on without leaving much behind, if anything at all. So th- the important thing for us to do is support them in every possible way, support the loss and damage fund because they're going to be experiencing, you know, the extreme impact of climate damage, drought and flooding and all of that and displacement of people. And, and also to um, to champion their call, uh, the small island states in particular, for an international treaty to phase out fossil fuels in an orderly fashion. Okay, it's impossible to overstate the scale of uh, the challenge. Uh, but would you agree it's possible, it's not too late? Well, you see, it's not really a question of is it possible or is it not. We just have to. I mean, if your house is on fire, you don't sit around and set up a committee. Heard that before, Sally. Put it out. Heard that before. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There's no choice here. We have to. I don't know. I've been hearing that for twenty years. I think. Well, what the scientists are saying is that every tenth of a degree matters. So, Mm. you know, we have a certain amount of warming locked in, but we need to do everything in our power to prevent further warming because further warming is more death, more destruction and more heat. Okay, we'll leave it there on that note and uh, perhaps uh, we'll heed that warning. Sive, thank you for joining us uh, on the programme today. Sive O'Neill, coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, good morning to you, David, and thank you for your WhatsApp message. I uh, did enjoy reading it, uh, telling me all about his aunt. Why is David telling me about his aunt? Well, his aunt is 90. She was never married. She never had children, but she got that text. Hi, Mum. I've lost my phone and this is a temporary number. Thank you, indeed. Another way of warning our listeners to watch out for that scam. Thanks for your message to the programme, David. Now, there is going to be traffic chaos it seems 
as a result of roadworks at Lordship that will take place far and wide over the course of uh, the next three weeks starting Monday. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin councillor Anton Waters. A very good morning to you Anton and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme. It does seem inevitable that there's going to be widespread disruption. Morning Michael, yeah, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, look, it's inevitable. It's going to be a tough couple of weeks for everybody travelling out, uh, out to the peninsula. As I've always said, um, the regional road there it kind of has motorway traffic on it on a normal day. So um, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to affect an awful lot of people. Um, but my hope is from speaking to the contractor and speaking to the council that we can try and get it done as quick as possible. And hopefully the weather will stay like it is today in the peninsula. Good day that we can get it done and have no mm. delays with bad weather, like you know. Yeah, but the road, it's the Dundalk-Carlingford main road uh, and it's going to be closed. Why is that the case? So basically, there's 800 metres, Michael, of the Lordship Village is going to be closed. And it's a, a, a huge undertaking. They're going to start on Monday morning and they're going to start playing in the road, which involves large machines taking off the existing surface. So uh, to do 800 metres, it's going to take quite a bit of time. So that's the reason why it's closed for this. Um, because of the size of the machine also, um, they're unable to allow traffic pass on the other lane. So that is one of the queries I had. Look, I've been inundated with queries and rightly so because it's affecting so many people. So I've mm. been speaking to the contractor and I had like a list of queries from local residents, businesses to try and see if we could get the best information out there. So yeah. we looked at options like Stop Go, Michael, where you'd have, you know, simple traffic lights. Unfortunately, because of the size of the machine, they can't, and it's reducing the size of both of the road and there's not enough room for vehicles to pass safely. So the mm. health and safety issue. We also looked at trying to see if we could get the works done at night, which would be a good idea, and it is done on the motorway, as we all know. But because of the, the uh, significant noise that comes from these machines, that wasn't an option because it would affect the residents. So, um, look, we did try, I did try, and I've been speaking now for over a week, trying to see what the best option was. We also had um, concerns with the with the route. So the, the diversion route is not ideal. It's small rural roads. But hopefully, when there's two routes now, so you have a route coming into the peninsula and a route going out of the peninsula, that the vehicles won't be meeting on these small roads. So hopefully, that will have a, a huge impact in reducing, you know, lost time travelling over the, the small roads, as I said. Mm, uh, why are the machines so big? I've never heard of uh, problems like that. Or is this new type of machinery that they're using? Uh, not that I'm aware. No, I think it's just you know, it's, because it's uh, what they have to do. They have to dig out the existing roads, so they have to go down. I remember when it was done in Bill Oregon earlier in the year, whenever it was open in the evening, you could see the extent of the work that they had to do. They go down a good few inches down to take the existing surface, which is breaking away. They have to take all that out, like dig all that out, basically. And the machine, like you know, the width of the carriageway, it's going to go over into the second carriageway. Um, I was hoping we were going to be able to keep it open and I was kind of arguing with them to try and get it but unfortunately when they take over the site health and safety is paramount and they have to make sure that everybody is safe you know when they're using it but look there's a lot of concerns there's a lot of businesses Mm. there as well that's affected like we have the station house I know is going to be very badly affected there's also Maria Goretti where children will be coming in every day so I'm hoping and have been promised that access will be um, maintained, it'll be local access into these uh, facilities. But look, there's no doubt it's going to, it's still not going to be uh, what's needed. Yeah. Ideally, if it was done at a quieter time of the year, it would be better, Michael. And that's something I intend to bring to the next council meeting that 
and notice is not good enough. Like, um, the same thing happened in Belargan, not as bad as now, but it literally, we were only told a day or two before it's happening, and it was panic stations, and there was like the Belargan service station was badly affected by it. So, I think mm. we need to look at planning this better at a, at a quieter time of the year so it's not having effects on businesses who are, you know, they're struggling, like people yeah. are struggling with the cost and everything. Yeah, there's two sides to it though, I suppose, Anton, and uh, I suppose from the council's perspective, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, uh, a bit like the obelisk bridge, which will close uh, on Tuesday for 10 months, uh, that's going to cause an awful lot of uh, problems in Drogheda and further afield. Uh, And there is no doubt about that, uh, but the work is necessary. Uh, And uh, if you don't do the work, you could be leaving a dangerous situation. If you do the work, well, then you've got to cause disruption and uh, that's going to upset people's lives. Uh, The roads at Lordship will close at half seven on Monday morning till half five uh, and every day then for three weeks, is it? Yes, every day. So, look, people, if they're leaving the tents, they need to be leaving and out past lots before half seven in the morning and coming home, it's at half five. So it will be open in the evening times and it will also be open at the weekends. But uh, unfortunately, I'm disappointed that works will be taking place next Monday on the bank holiday. So Monday week, the bank holiday, they will be working to try and get it done. So I suppose that's disappointing mm. too that it's affecting bank holiday traffic as well coming in. Look, you know, we've talked about it before, many people come to visit Carnford and come to visit or meet the surrounding areas. Mm. So it is going to be a huge, uh, it's going to be a huge task. I work in lots of, like, my own company, or where we work for Connor Roofing, it's going to be a huge effect as well. I'm going to be right in the middle of it for two weeks, so I just hope it can be done as quick as possible, Michael, and that it's not going to be uh, affected by the weather. That would Mm. be the best thing. It'll be a good spell of weather and a good run at it. Let's hope it's not as long Mm. as the plan. plan. I wonder if you'll regret that, you know, (laughs) because if you get any kind of good weather, uh, people will flock to the Cooley Peninsula. Yeah, don't we know? We don't want yeah. to know about the traffic yeah. chaos that it causes other beaches and everything. But look, it's a good... It, look, yeah. We love to see people coming to area and that's what we want to happen. And as you say, and someone mentioned to me earlier, you can't make a cake without breaking some eggs. And look, it's all right saying that when you're not really affected, but mm. it is affecting a lot of people. So my main thing is get it done as quick as we can, get the road up to a good surface again, and like this, let's continue on. Like, and, mm. uh, there's other routes that's starting as well in the peninsula which will be surface for us and the council team are working on that. So this is all part of the roadwork program scheme every year and next year we'll be picking different routes to, to do. So we just need to keep improving the road infrastructure every year. Yeah, and I, I think the main message for people now is uh, to prepare for it, uh, expect delays. Uh, this is going ahead, it's inevitable, there's no turning back now from uh, half seven on Monday morning over the next three weeks. Uh, it, it won't just be at Lordship because the traffic will back up elsewhere because, as you say, people will be driving on small rural roads, people will be cautious, uh, they'll be driving slowly, some others will be frustrated with that. We'd ask people to be patient and uh, to expect delays, leave earlier and expect to get home late. Of course, and, and, and I'd also say this respect the area you're going through to. A lot of people will be travelling through the area that they don't know, but there's a lot of people living up in them roads who would never see traffic like this, and it's going to be a huge, uh, you know, it's going to be a huge operation. So I just ask people to respect the, the place that you're travelling through. A lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people living there. So hopefully people will have respect, and as you say, a wee bit of extra time, allow an extra, uh, what, take 10, 15 minutes extra just to do your journey and look, you are going to get wee bits of delays but I've been assured, especially for the local access, it will be maintained 
so there will be delays getting in on it. So hopefully it'll be done as smoothly as possible. Okay, thank you indeed, Sinn Féin Councillor Anton Waters. Thanks to Margaret too, who's texting saying we need public service broadcasting now more than ever with all of the lies that are being told on the internet and believed by some people. RT Investigates is a very good programme and highlights wrongdoing uh, and for that alone it's worth the licence fee. They also did a great investigation into the ill-treatment of bull calves a few weeks ago, a shocking story of cruelty. As for a lot of people watching programmes on laptops, I find that hard to believe because a lot of people have 55-inch TVs over the mantelpiece in their homes. Yeah, it's the people upstairs, I think, Margaret, uh, who are on their laptops. Uh, the bigger, the better for the, the TV. We have a 32-inch, she says. It's more than enough. The team behind RTE investigates would not be paid half as much as the top earners in RTE, yet they still do a fantastic job. Well done to all of them and keep up the good work, says Margaret. Thank you indeed. Uh, that's our final word today. Our time has run out and as Maggie McGuire researched, Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. Hope you have a nice weekend and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.